0: Father, as we worship together this morning, we're so grateful for the camaraderie that we have through the Holy Spirit of God who indwells each and every believer. We're so thankful for the word which you've given us to instruct us not only in our basic theology and understanding of who you are, but as the guidebook for how we should live this life that you've given to us. And, Lord, we know that we so often fall short of its teachings. I pray, though, Father, that we will continue to persevere and trust you for the strength to be obedient and to trust that Christ will continue to form his image in us. O Lord, we look forward to that day when the image of God as it was created originally in Adam and Eve will be restored to us as we stand in your presence. O Lord, we're thankful at the same time that you understand that we have feet of clay and that you have given to us forgiveness of sin. And so, Father, we ask you this morning to cleanse our hearts and to fill us with your spirit and give us understanding of your word in the name of Christ, amen. Excuse me? Oh, Dolores? Maybe those doors could be pulled a little bit tighter. I don't know if it makes much difference, but. (laughs) Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. And Delium and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, or Hidikul. It flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Perath, or the Euphrates. We'll stop right at that point. I want to take a few minutes for us to just uh, contemplate the geography of the garden. Now, if any of you... I trust all of you, if you don't, or you will someday, own an atlas of the Scripture, and if you have noticed and looked in there and done a little bit of studying, you'll probably discover that most of them try to place the Garden of Eden somewhere uh, in, on that map of the Near East. What we have here is a little bit of evidence as to the location of the Garden and of Eden itself. We're told, first of all, that there was a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. This this seems to tell us that somewhere in the land of Eden there was a great spring that welled up out of the ground, sort of like a, a much more massive version of what goes over Bernie Falls. Now. If we understand anything about modern hydrology, we know that uh, springs, artesian wells, and so forth, are produced by gravity, gravity flow, drawing water through the various aquifers from higher elevations. And it's the head of the water that is coming into the uh, aquifer that produces the pressure that causes the spring or the well. Now, that, of course, requires that water be falling on highlands. But as we know from what we've read so far, there does not seem to be evidence of any rainfall or snowfall up to this point, which means that this spring has to be powered some other way than the typical artesian or gravity flow. That there must have been, if, if there was a spring of this nature, that it must have been driven from some kind of an underground reservoir, a reservoir that may have been under pressure due to the heat of the earth. And we, we referred to this verse uh, once before, but let me just read it to you quickly. Uh, Genesis 7:11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Now, this seems to indicate something other than what we know to exist today. There aren't any fountains of the great deep today that we know of. Yes, there are underground aquifers, but but not with any great volume of water, (laughs) part of the problem we see in the world today. Uh, The demands that are placed on the aquifers that we know about cause many of them to drop very, very rapidly and and produce subsidence of the soil, such as we have down the San Joaquin Valley. So obviously there's no vast underground reservoirs that could burst forth in the sense we see. And when we talk about the Noahic flood, we'll notice that 40 days and 40 nights of rainfall is not going to cover the earth. So the vast majority of the water that came to cover the earth wasn't from the sky, but was from these reservoirs underground. Probably also a a differential movement of the surface of the earth, causing whatever oceans existed at that time to cover the land. So it seems that there was some kind of a a well or a spring that came forth and produced this particular river. Now the wording of the passage seems to indicate that the well is not in the garden, but is elsewhere in Eden. Eden is the name of the land in which the garden was located. You might translate it rather the garden of Eden, more specifically the garden in Eden. Now, we aren't really, it isn't all that clear, as you look at this passage, to know for sure whether in the garden or after the river left the garden, it divided, apparently, into four distributaries. It seems to indicate after. Now, this is a very, very unusual phenomenon. If you've studied world geography at all, you know that basically a river does not break into distributaries until it is arriving at its delta, or the place in which it empties into the sea, or a lake, or wherever it empties. At that point, it breaks and forms the many different distributaries. Now, the term delta comes from the shape of the Egyptian Nile delta. And of course, it's the shape of the Greek letter delta. And if you've seen the satellite photographs, it's a a perfect, almost a perfect delta shape, triangle shape, and that comes from the river breaking into its distributaries. This is very common, but it's not common, as indicates here, for it to break into distributaries and then these distributaries to flow for great distances before they go wherever they're going. It seems to break up and flow off into several different lands. Now, many have hypothesized about this and said, well, these were world-circling rivers and all kinds of other things that, uh, for which there's no evidence in the Scripture or in any study of world geography. What we have here seems to be a special condition created by God. And I think it's very important for us to, to have a basic understanding of something here, which I trust you already have if you study the many different uh, commentaries that are written on Genesis, some are written by evangelicals and some are not, and many have a very difficult time trying to explain things that are not found today that apparently existed before. And to me, it's not a problem of geography or geology, it's a problem with God. It's a problem they have with, the, with the, the ability of God to do something in the past that he's not doing today. If we go back to the original concept we talked about before of James Hutton and the theory of uniformitarianism, if we're thoroughly imbued with that and we, we believe that nothing can be happening in the past, could happen in the past that doesn't happen today, then we've got a problem. But if we allow God to be God, and allow him to do what he would, and allow the world to be different from d- today from what it was then, then I don't think that there's any problem with something that may not be a phenomenon that we may find today. I believe this was a special condition if this picture that I'm drawing to you is an accurate one of a great well springing forth, of the river flowing through the garden, and it, after it passes through the garden, breaking into these four rivers. That's An explanation, anyway, seems to be indicated here. This would, of course, indicate that the river flowing through the garden was no puny little creek. It had to be a fairly large river if it's going to divide into four main rivers or major rivers and flow off into the different compass directions. Now, the four distributaries are named here for us. Two of the names are names we're familiar with, and two are not. Let's look at them in the order in which they're presented here. And the two unknown ones come first. First of all, we have a reference to the pishon. Now, this is not a word used anywhere else in Scripture, and there is no attestation to this word in any other literature. Therefore, there's a great deal of problem with it. Apparently, it means cascading, cascade, which would be a very common thought. Uh, Let me jump ahead for a minute. When Adam was in the garden, God brought to him the animals, and he was to name the animals. How did he do that? He didn't call them George and Bob and Bill and Sally and Susie. Huh. He gave them names which seemed to indicate something of their character. And it'd be interesting to know, uh, I think I mentioned this before, but it's, it's a thought that's come to my mind. If, if we could trace the etymology of the words that we use for these animals to find out if they have any origin or any similitude to what Adam called them. I, I have no way... We have no way of finding that out, but it'd be interesting to know. That being true, it's very possible that the rivers could have been named for a characteristic of them, too. This is the Cascading River. Could be so. It flows, or flowed, through the land of Havilah, which means sandy. Now, later references to Havilah seem to indicate that it was located in northwestern Arabia. Let me read a verse to you from Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25, 18. Now this is a reference to Ishmael and his descendants. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt as one goes towards Assyria. Now, that can refer to a fairly large area, but it seems to indicate at least the general location of northern or northwestern Arabia. Now, some have argued, and to me it seems a little bit far out, that the Pichon was the Ganges or the Indus. But if you've ever sat down with a map, you discover those are a long ways away from here. And, of course, the Indus and the Ganges both drain the great Himalaya Karakoram chain totally unrelated to the two rivers that we do know in the passage, as we'll look at in a moment. It's highly unlikely, therefore, that it's any river at such a great distance from Mesopotamia. A special mention is made in this passage concerning the Pishon, concerning gold and delium and onyx stone being found in this land of Havilah. Now, delium, again, is not really certain in terms of its meaning. Some think it refers to some kind of a stone. Others, uh, more commonly believe, it refers to an aromatic rosin, something like myrrh. Something that had value, something that was mostly used for a kind of a perfume uh, type thing. The term onyx, again, we, you, most of us know what onyx is. It's... Usually it's a black stone, uh, even though onyx comes in many shades of gray and white and black and so forth. If it is the same as modern onyx, it was, it's a variety of chalcedony, which is a crystalline silicate. But there are those who believe that the term onyx here refers to lapis lazuli, which is that beautiful blue stone that was found very characteristic characteristically throughout the Mesopotamian world, although not mined there. So what, we're saying, what I'm saying is that we don't even know for sure what these terms refer to, specifically as a modern object or product. Now, we all know what gold is, and gold is very common throughout that part of the world. Throughout Mesopotamia, gold was found rather abundantly. And in the hills, up, up in what is Turkey, and, and many different areas. In Egypt, they mine gold from as far back as, as Egypt is known to have existed. So gold was a fairly common metal, so that really wouldn't nail anything down for us. Now the question is, why does, why does God have Moses even mention these things? Because he doesn't say anything relative to, uh, for example, the Euphrates, and anything found in the land it flows through. I don't think we can really know the answer other than, first of all, to those who were reading it in the day of Moses, it might have meant something to them. I think, of course, certainly we can say that it refers to the beauty and the provision of God, that he is the one who placed these things here. God put gold in the earth and silver in the earth, God put the crystals in the earth which are formed into beautiful stones that many of us wear as jewelry, and it's not wrong. I think it's an expression of the, of the might, and the power, and, and the interest of God in beauty. It's, of course, when we love these things more than we love God that it becomes a problem for us. Uh, if you've uh, studied much about modern gemology, you know that uh, there's an awful lot of evil that's involved with it, uh, particularly in the mining and the distribution of it. A lot of criminal activity that goes along with it. But the stones themselves are of, of course, exquisite beauty. Now it's, uh, later on in Revelation, I mean, no, we're not in Revelation. Genesis, it'll be a while before we get to Revelation. The scripture mentions that both Ham and Shem have a descendant by the name of Havilah. This is found in the 10th chapter of Genesis. And so uh, it could be that, of course, the reference is to the land that was occupied by these descendants of Adam and Eve. The second river mentioned is the Gihon. And again, as such, it is never again mentioned In Scripture. Now, the name Gihon means bursting forth or bubbling up. Again, obviously, it could be uh, the name for uh, the way a river appeared to Adam or actually watching it come out of the ground. Who knows? Now, the name Gihon will be found later in Scripture, but it won't refer to this river. Rather, it refers to a spring that comes out of the ground at the southern edge of the city of Jerusalem. And if you go there today, and if you ever go to Jerusalem, don't miss it. The spring comes out beneath the ground. Uh, originally, of course, it came out and flowed on the outside. But tunnels were built back uh, in the days of the Jebusites so that they could get down from the, within the walls to, to bring water up. And then Hezekiah, in his day, built a tunnel to keep the water inside the walls of Jerusalem. And today, if you go over there, you can walk inside the tunnel that that Hezekiah built. And it's it's an exciting thing to do. Of course, if you're claustrophobic, it can be a little bit of a problem because it's a very narrow tunnel, kind of almost rub shoulders on both sides as you walk through. And there's water in the bottom, so you're sloshing through water. Not always, you know, sometimes it's a few inches deep. Sometimes it's further up than that. And sometimes you have to walk like this to get through because it's not very tall. Other places, it's as tall as the ceiling. Partly because you can imagine they were digging from both ends when they built the tunnel. And in those days, they didn't have all the equipment we have in, in these days. So it's a, ma- it's a miracle they brought the tunnel together at all. And it kind of wanders around, but they finally get there. <laughs> <clears throat> That spring is called Gihon. But that is not what's being referred to here because that's a very, very small flow of water. Now here we're told that it flows through the land of Cush. Now Cush is a common name. It's referred to many times in scripture. Of course, Cush was a descendant of Ham. And he is thought to be the father of the Ethiopians, the Cushites, the Nubians. Uh, These terms are kind of almost used interchangeably in many ways. But is this reference referring to Cush as it's later referred to in Scripture? Are we talking about Sudan, Ethiopia, Egypt? Are we talking about that area? Some say yes, and therefore they identify the Gihon as the Nile. There's one great big problem with the Nile. It flows the opposite direction. The Nile flows from south to north, whereas the Tigris-Euphrates flow from northwest to southeast. So it seems highly unlikely that the Nile is referred to here as the Gihon. Now, some refer to the land of Cush as the land of the Kasu, who were a people who lived in the Zagros Mountains. And if you take your primitive little map here and, and you look right over here, you'll see the term Zagros Mountains running more or less parallel to the Tigris River and more or less separating Iraq from Iran, is a chain of mountains called the Zagros. And that chain of mountains was the source of many of the peoples who invaded Mesopotamia in subsequent centuries. Uh, It's it's a significant chain of mountains. It rises up in many places to 15,000 feet in elevation. Uh, And there is an area in there that was known as the land of the Kasu, land of the Kasu, and, and some Say that is the Kush being referred to here, and therefore it was a river that somehow was connected with that land. The third river referred to in this passage is the Hidikul, or the Tigris, which you can see on the map, drains from southeastern Turkey to the Persian Gulf. Now the Tigris River has been absolutely a key river, along with the Euphrates, to the the cradle of civilization. Civilization as we know it today, had its birth approximately 6,000 years ago in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, at least as far as archeology span can go back and, and look at ancient civilizations. And so the Tigris and Euphrates were were sort of key to the agricultural surplus which allowed a civilization to develop there in ancient Mesopotamia. Now it says that the Tigris here flows east of Assyria. That is a problem because the Tigris basically flows centrally or even on the western side of ancient Assyria today i mean yeah in a map today this may be our first clue to the fact that the geography then is not the geography now of this part of the world some have said well the term assyria simply refers to the city of asher and the tigris does flow east of the city of asher and it is from the city of asher that the name assyria comes but it seems clearly to refer to a land and not specifically to a city. Now the reason that we cannot identify the Pishon or the Gihon and not find any place where one river divides into four, I think probably is based on the catastrophe that we call the Noeg flood. Because I I firmly believe that that flood transformed the geography of the ancient world. I really don't believe the geography we know today is the geography that God originally created. Let me uh, turn for a moment to Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, 5 and 6. this of course is in reference to Christ's return but I think it tells us something about the point I'm trying to make for when they maintain this you know that that everything has gone on from creation day uh, the same you know, uniformitarianism is what is really being said there in 2nd Peter 3 4 for when they maintain this it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water now when we get to the Noahic flood we're going to talk a little bit about uh, our modern modern understanding of, of hydrology and how the Noahic flood was not just simply a little bit of water rising you know well, look, it's a, it's a couple inches deeper now. Oh, it's rising slowly here. And the ark didn't just kind of gently float off into the sunset. There was probably a tremendous storm and tremendous earth upheaval going along with it because it says the fountains of the deep were broken up. So great earthquakes were probably happening and the, the seas were probably massive. And paleontologists have discovered in the rocks of the earth great hordes of creatures That were destroyed apparently instantaneously because they're 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 in the rocks they're shown in the form of fright you know kind of a thing you know (laughs) fish with all of their fins just kind of poking out like this not in a kind of you know rollover and die form but but a death that just overwhelmed them suddenly and we're not talking about two or three we're talking about millions and billions of creatures. And so we're going to see the Noach flood was no minor little thing. It was a massive catastrophe that swept the entire earth and destroyed, I believe, the geography of the ancient world. And so if we cannot find the Pishon and the Gihon, and it doesn't seem like the Tigris is flowing where it ought to flow relative to what we understand, I think that's the reason. It was different as God created the heavens and the earth. The fourth river is the Perath, or the Euphrates, about which nothing is said. It doesn't say it flows through a, a realm that was full of lapis lazuli, or doesn't say it flowed through a fertile land. It just doesn't say. It says the fourth is the Euphrates. That's all. In fact, what's kind of interesting is, as you go from the Pishon to the Gihon to the Tigris to the Euphrates, uh, you have a, a steadily decreasing amount of information given. And that seems to be The reason for that seems to be simply that the Tigris and Euphrates were well known to those who received the letter from Moses, the the writing of Genesis. Everybody understood the Euphrates. They knew where it was. They knew its importance. So they didn't need to have any other information relative to that river. If the Tigris and the Euphrates of this account can in any way be associated with the current rivers by those names, then it would seem by deduction that Eden had to be somewhere along the course of those two rivers. I realize that doesn't take a great deal of intellect to figure out. That being so, Most commentators from early church fathers to the present hold to two primary places, as possible, places. The first is, if you look at your map, right up in here, where the source of the Tigris and the source of the Euphrates are very close to each other. In fact, according to one writer, one of the tributaries to the Tigris arises only 1,100 yards from one of the tributaries to the Euphrates. They both come out of the Armenian or uh, eastern Turkey highlands very, very close together. Urartu is the ancient name of this area. We would call it eastern Turkey or traditionally Armenia. It's a highland area. It's an area of mountains and of plateaus. It's an area of uh, snowfall and rainfall. It's an area of of abundance of precipitation. If you go a little bit west from there, you get out into the great Anatolian desert, which is very much the opposite. Central Turkey is surrounded by mountains, and those mountains have sufficient precipitation, but Central Turkey is, by what we call the rain shadow effect, uh, protected from such and is a relatively dry area as the Crusaders would later discover when they tried to march through that area. Um, So if we place it up here, there are those who say, well, there's another major river that flows over here to the Caspian and another one which flows up to the Black Sea, and one of those could be the Pishon and the other could be the Gihon. Well, that's possible. The problem is, of course, they do not arise as a single river and break into the four. But again, of course, that could be because of the change of geography at the time of the Great Flood, if that is the approximate location. You'll notice how close Mount Ararat is. Just uh, over to the right, to the east there a little bit, that is modern Mount Ararat. We can't prove that modern Mount Ararat is the mountains of Ararat, referred to later on in Genesis where the Ark landed, but uh, traditionally it has held, been held to be so. And you go over to that part of the world and the... The ancient Armenian I mean the Armenian peoples have have folklore that goes way back prior to Christ that that is the mountain upon which the ark landed. And of course as you should know there've been lots of expeditions going over there uh, trying to discover the ark and strangely they haven't found it. The other option is way down south towards the Persian Gulf in Mesopotamia itself. The term Mesopotamia, uh, you probably are aware of, means the land between the two rivers. And, of course, the two rivers being the Tigris and the Euphrates. Ancient Sumer, which then later became Old Babylonia. You'll notice that the Tigris and Euphrates join a little bit to the east of ancient Ur, from which Abraham would later come. And then it flows out to the sea as the Shat el Arab, a single river. Those who have studied this would put the garden down there, about where the two rivers join. And they would argue that there are some rivers that come out of the Zagros that flow in here too, and they could thus be the Pishon and the Gihon. A couple of them could be, at least. Which would be, of course, a standard uh, drainage pattern which doesn't seem to be what's described there. It's kind of interesting, again, referring to a a statement made by John Calvin. He drew a picture of this in his own mind. In fact, he actually drew a picture of it that was in his commentary in which he portrays Eden exactly at this point. And his argument is that what is being described there is not a single river breaking into four, but two flowing into one, and then flowing through the garden, and then dividing into two. So you have two flowing in and two flowing out. That constitutes the four, and the single river flowing through the garden. Thus, the Shat al Arab, being basically where the garden was located. It's an interesting concept. Now, there have been those, of course, who have tried to put Eden in 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 Africa. Or some other place. And if you are following along with the, the Leakey family <laughs> and, and all of the discoveries they're making, uh, it, the claim is, of course, that it was in East Africa that mankind arose. And of course, the most recent uh, theory is that mankind began with an ancient African woman, kind of what they call an Eve. Interesting that they should use such a term. And, and that she came, comes from East Africa. And all mankind has hence derived from this single woman. Very, very interesting when you think about this. Of course, they place it back millions of years. But nevertheless, it's kind of an interesting concept. So somewhere, probably, if the geography is not too radically different, Eden must have been either in the upper or the lower reaches of the Tigris and the Euphrates as best as we can determine today. But, of course, we can't nail it down exactly. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 15 of Genesis. Genesis 2, 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. We're told God put Adam in the garden. Adam was not created in the garden, it would seem, this would seem to indicate that he wasn't created in the garden, but created west of the garden, That's why he calls the garden to the east or Eden, the land to the east. And then he was transported there. Now, I I don't think we should have any problem with that because, uh, you know, Philip was transported by the Holy Spirit from one spot to the other. So it it could easily have happened or God could have just simply led Adam to walk. I I don't think we should get hung up on that. Not that anybody is, except some of the commentators. Commentators get hung up on a lot of things. It's very interesting. (laughs) Now, the instructions here are very clear. God instructed him to work and to care for the garden. I think it's important for us to notice that paradise, as we would call it, and uh, of course, John Milton would clearly refer to it, was not a place to just sit back and recline in the hammock and sip lemonade. I mean, God didn't create the world and a garden and put Adam in it and say, hey, Adam, just take your ease. No. Adam was put here with a job to do. Mankind was to express this innate image of God by displaying his creativeness with what God has given him to work with. In the development of the garden, God didn't create A garden that was a mass of twisted vines and briars, but nevertheless it was a garden that needed trimming, needed a gardener. And so Adam was placed there, and Eve also, to carry out this task. He was to enhance its beauty and its orderliness. This must have been a pleasure. Because in those days, there were no weeds, as we think of weeds. Uh, there was no disease. There were no varmints to destroy everything. Any of you have tried gardening, and you know, it doesn't take very long before the little bugs are chewing, and the blight gets to it, and the frost gets to it. and I mean, it's really a struggle, even under the best conditions, it seems. I think... For Adam and Eve, the work was joyful. It was fulfilling. It helped them to know the reason for their existence. They had a purpose. They were working hand in hand with God to fulfill His plan. It was not the uh, the distasteful drudgery it would later become. Scripture tells us that when God the curse because of the sin he said that Adam would bring food from the soil by the sweat of his brow it would be work it would be hard work it would be drudgery it would be exhausting so I think it's real important here for us to understand mankind was placed on this planet to work and to serve not to be entertained not to pursue his pleasure We weren't put here to be hedonists. You would never know that from the advertising in our society, of course. You watch television very long, and you get the feeling like everybody should be a total hedonist. Let me just read a few other passages of Scripture that seem to underline this point. First, from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Beginning at verse 18. First of all, let me say, if you read the verses before this, verses 15 and 16, uh, the point Solomon is making is that without God, labor is not only hard, it's pointless. It's fruitless. But with God, it is to be enjoyed. Here, is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in that he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. This is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God for he will not often consider the years of his life, because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. In other words, if we're busy being about the Lord's business, we are not sitting there moping and mourning over the fact that our days are slipping away. You know, holding our pulse and counting our beats and saying, oh, that's that many fewer beats we got left, you know. That can be very, very disturbing to do that. I mean, do we lay down every night in bed and say, wow, I've got one day left. I mean, one less day left. No. If we're about the Lord's business, we look forward to the next day and serving Him again. Not that we don't get tired and not that sometimes things aren't a little bit disturbing to us and we've got that person who's heavy on our hearts that hasn't turned to the Lord yet and we've got a problem at work or at home or whatever. Those things are true. But hopefully, whatever we are doing, the Scripture says, we're to do it with all our might. We're to set our hand to it as if it was the Lord's business no matter what it is, because it is His business. And as we do so, labor is joyful. And it's rewarding. And you've heard it so many times, and I hope it has nothing to do with anybody in this room. But... There are those who, who work their 65 years and retire at 65, and three months later, they're in, the, they're in the coffin because suddenly they don't seem to have any purpose, nothing to be here for. They were all wrapped up in their job, and suddenly all the parameters are gone, and whew, they just give up and die. But in the Lord, that shouldn't be true because we serve him whether at a, an official job for which we receive monetary return or whatever it is we do. It should be in his service and the labor should be to accomplish his kingdom. That's what God put us here for. And I believe that when we, receive, when we ultimately get to paradise, our work is not sitting on clouds strumming harps, you know, as the old traditional picture is. But God will give us a job to do as he did Adam and Eve in the garden. We will have a place to serve. Well, let, let's look at some of these other passages here. 2 Thessalonians 3. 10. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some of you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in or of doing good. Now that, of course, is a basic statement to what our life is to be like here and now. We are to earn our own way as much as we are able to. And we are not to grow weary in doing good. A statement, of course, not only of temporal expending of energy, but of course of eternal reward in the end. And that is that reward is part of the statement in Revelation chapter 22 verse 3 and there shall no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his bond servants shall serve him we will serve God throughout eternity we won't float around on clouds. We will have the new heavens and the new earth to enjoy in which to serve him in whatever capacity that will be. And we should be preparing ourselves for that by serving here. God expects service of us. Where the scripture says to serve one another. Do we do that? Are we committed to serving one another? One of the ways by which we serve one another is another admonition given in Scripture, and that is to pray for one another. Do we pray specifically one for the other? That is part of our service. That's one of the most important parts of our service. We don't have a, quote, garden to keep as Adam and Eve did, but our garden is to serve the Lord and to do whatever it is we are to do with all of our strength with the purpose of pleasing Him. We're we're not to be men-pleasers, but God-pleasers. As we please God, we will generally please men. You often will find that if if you serve the Lord in your actual physical task, that people will eventually ask you, why is it you don't act like the other employees here? (laughs) Why is it you seem to work a lot harder? Why are you happier in your job? Others are always trying to cut corners, and every time the boss isn't there, they're trying to take a snooze. Well, the difference is we have a different boss, and he's never gone. (laughs) And hopefully he's here in our hearts, and, and he wants us to react in the world as he would and does because we're to be his servants. Now, Adam was told to maintain the order of the garden, not to destroy it. This is a concept of wise stewardship. And I think it's a part of biblical teaching all the way through Scripture. Wise stewardship of this planet. I think as Christians, we're to promote, we're to resist the rape of the earth. were to promote the wise use of its resources. Now, I I don't believe as Christians we're to be major advocates of, uh, you know, a return to the nature movement where we all run around, you know, in the all together trying to live in harmony with nature. I, I don't think that's what is being referred to here. Man is to use this planet for his advantage, but not to destroy it, not out of his greed to ruin it, And, of course, we live in a country where this has been a a major problem. If if you study U.S. history, you you realize that the idea was, oh, this this country goes on forever. We don't need to take care of this plot of land. As soon as it gets exhausted, just move over and take a new piece. And that's why the Cotton Kingdom moved all the way across the Black Earth Belt uh, from the coast over through Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and, well, eastern Western Georgia, all of that area because new land, just open new land. Why bother putting money into fertilizing and taking care of the ground? We just open up new land. And this has been the attitude. Oh, the ocean's so big. How could you ever pollute it? Just dump everything in it. And of course, if you've read the Ra expedition, Thor Heyerdahl floating out in the middle of the Atlantic in his little balsa wood thing. Well, it was not balsa wood papyrus reed boat said you could find bottles and globs of oil floating out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. We, we live in a finite earth, and it can be destroyed. As Christians, we... I don't think we should become radicals, but I think we should, in, in the sense that some are, you know, go out there and stand in front of the tree so nobody can saw it down. But I think we should promote the wise use of its resources. Implied in the Hebrew, which is translated to cultivate and keep the garden, is the concept of worship and obedience. To faithfully work in in obedience to God is to worship Him. Some of you have read uh, the little book called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And in there he indicates that even washing pots and pans is an act of worship to God. That might seem really strange. <laughs> I had a job one time where that's what I did all the day was wash pots and pans. But even in that, we can glorify God by not only doing a good job, but having the right attitude in our hearts toward the Lord while we're doing it. And of course, using our minds in what is normally a mindless task to pray and to talk to God God would meet with Adam and Eve in the garden, and he would commune with them, enabling them to enjoy the direct worship of the Creator. Do you and I enjoy the direct worship of the Creator? When we meditate on his word and we talk to him, we are in direct communion with God. Now, it's an act of faith, but the Scripture says we are in communion with God, that we can go into the presence of God right into his throne room, as it were. And we need to carry that attitude with us to our jobs, to our school, to our recreation, wherever it is we go. We should remember God is present there with us, and he wants our worship in the doing of it. God gave Adam permission to eat from the fruit of any of the trees of the garden except one, one measly tree in this whole garden. He was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why not? Well, because God said, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now, the word die there must be understood in in the sense of be alienated from God, separated from God. And ultimately, of course, it would also produce a physical death. It would bring the concept of physical death as well as spiritual separation onto the planet Earth. It would create, in C.S. Lewis's words, Fulcandra, the silent planet. The planet from which the radiation of the joy of the Lord would be no longer. Because of the presence of sin and of the evil one, Now the terms good and evil are used here in their ultimate moral sense. God alone knows what is good, and God alone is good. God is the only one who knows what is good for you and for me, what is good for mankind. God only knows that. And now he has told us through his word much of what that is. But when you, when you think about it, it's almost an alpha-omega concept here. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Hebrew terms here seem to refer to the opposite extremes, which seems to indicate then that the knowledge of good and evil would be equal, equal to omniscience. Or at least man would think that, and Satan would attempt to entice man with that thought. Thus, to choose to eat from the tree was not simply an act of of picking a fruit in disobedience, was actually the pursuit of divinity. That, of course, is the reference we have in Scripture in Isaiah and Ezekiel relative to Satan. He sought to be like the Most High, and he used that same temptation that you will be like God to pursue divinity. Divinity. We have many trying to do that today, standing out in the beach and saying, I am God, you know. Instead of trusting God to choose what is good, therefore, mankind would be choosing to be responsible for himself to know what is good and what is evil. Whoa. <laughs> that is very sad. Because when you think about it, How much wisdom do we really have in ourselves? Now, the question that might be asked is, what did God put the tree there for in the first place? If God hadn't put the tree there, we'd all be living in paradise as perfect people today, right? Well, the answer seems to be within the very framework of why God created man in the first place and and what he made this man to be. He made man in the image of God. Which means he gave him an independent will. He didn't make him a robot. He didn't make him like the animals without the capacity to choose between good and evil. He created man as a free moral being who was capable of choosing to love and to worship God or not. Now, what good is the power of choice if you have nothing to choose between? <laughs> you go to the cafeteria, you have the power of choice, but they only have one thing to eat. Well, you still have a choice. <laughs> don't have to eat. But, you know, there are other forces within us that are saying that's not a good option. So the only way that man could exhibit, could, could, could wield his power of choice, would be if there were options. He could choose to disobey and there would be a way of doing that so god created the tree in the garden as an option but i think on the other hand we have to understand that god did everything to make the choice not an obvious choice that would be good In other words, as God communed with Adam and Eve in the garden, he displayed his love and his power and his mercy, everything that's part of God's character. He put him in a perfect paradise. Everything was there to fulfill his need and also to fulfill his purpose for being. Adam didn't didn't go around wringing his hands saying, I've already taken care of the garden, now what am I going to do? There was always something yet to be done in which he could display his Godhood, I mean, his God likeness in the image of God's sense and his creativity. Perfect paradise. Every sense and every need satisfied and fulfilled. And the option for disobedience was what? Just one little tree. How many trees were there in the garden? I don't know. I think there were probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands. How big was the garden? We don't know that either. And I don't think it was an extraordinary tree. I don't think it looked totally different from the other trees. You know, purple and and green and chartreuse, and uh, it probably was a tree that other trees were more beautiful than. The fruit of which was not particularly extraordinary compared to the fruit of other trees. It wasn't a magical tree. It was just another tree that was forbidden. It was unique, one of its kind. I don't think God made several of them that looked like it that could be mistaken. It was a clear-cut tree. I think the importance is that it was not, not in the magical quality of the tree or anything else, but in that it was a touchstone of choice. Here was the option. The principle behind the placement of the tree seems to be clearly expressed by God through Moses when the Israelites were poised to enter the promised land. And we'll look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. In that I command you today the, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that he may live, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you this day that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter it and to possess it. it. It seems like a direct parallel right out of Eden. The principle is the same. I put before you life and prosperity, death and adversity, choose you this day. As Elijah would say in the top of Mount Carmel, whom you will serve. If the Lord God, choose him. If Baal, choose him. But choose. We make that choice, first of all, when we're born again. But we don't stop at that. That choice has to be made every single day of our life. Now, I'm not saying that we can choose to go back and become unsaved. But I'm saying we can choose each day whether we're going to be obedient this day to the commands of the Lord. Are we going to walk in his ways, or are we going to go off on a rabbit trail? What are we going to do today? And that's why he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. That's why he gives us 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive, because he knows we're going to make some bad choices along the way. But he makes it every bit possible for us to walk in obedience, and he makes it very desirable. And Adam and Eve in the garden had no reason to choose the tree. And they had every reason to be obedient to God. But you know the story. They made the wrong choice. Next week, we're going to look, first of all, at the creation of woman as we move through Genesis.